So it's what is the absolute tiniest thing that real aficionados in this space would scoff and laugh at, right? But is enough to make a change and set off a chain reaction that will lead to someone becoming a different person or living their life differently. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn, and if you're just joining us, the mission of my podcast is twofold, to guide you to an encounter with your own potential and greatness, and to show you it is possible to leverage who you were made to be into a business or a platform that impacts the lives of others and to help you design the life you want. My guests are entrepreneurs and leaders who have had what I refer to as an impact moment and are using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. That sounds great, right? But none of that is possible unless you take action in your own life. If you've listened to my show for any length of time, you know that each guest is part of a series such as leadership, courage, the comeback, halftime, and for the next few weeks, finding your purpose. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? I feel called to do something, but I'm not sure exactly what my purpose is. How do I find it? These are common questions and statements many of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and leaders have asked throughout their lives. And incidentally, these are some of the same questions and statements you and I may be making or asking on a daily basis. And guess what? That is a good thing. Never stop asking questions. Always try to advance from your current reality to your desired reality. The very word question implies a desire to find the truth, to find the meaning, and to find purpose about your life. We spent the last few weeks talking about grabbing the opportunity bull by the horns and riding it into submission. But to what end? Why should we do that? What will that accomplish? Well, my hope is that the guests you will hear from these next few weeks will stoke your thinking, inspire you to begin answering some of these questions for yourself, and show you that it is possible to be an entrepreneur driven by a strong purpose and mission while serving others and living the life that you want. Now, enough from me. It's time to hear about our incredible guests. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Dr. John Berardi, the co-founder of the incredible company Precision Nutrition. If you did not listen to part one, hit the pause button, head over to last week's episode, and be sure to listen to part one with Dr. John Berardi. Today, we cover a lot about mastering behavior change and how he and his team are taking what they've learned about changing behavior and applying that to industries outside of the fitness and nutrition space. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and without further ado, here is part two with Dr. John Berardi, Brace for Impact. Dr. John Berardi, welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show for round two of our conversation. I'm very excited to continue talking about some of the amazing things that you are doing in and around precision nutrition. So welcome back. Thank you, sir. And for those of you listening who stuck with us through, I don't know, what was an hour and a half or something of part one, and now you're here for part two, you guys are amazing. You're like endurance <laughs> athletes. 
of podcast listening. So I appreciate you coming back for part two. Well, you know, you shared a, trem- a tremendous amount of wisdom in the, in the first part. And one of the things you started to talk about at the end of round one was behavior change. And we're going to get into that in a, in a minute here. But before we do that, I wanted to, to touch base on a few of the other things that we talked about. One of the things we mentioned earlier in part one is that you advise some of the biggest brands out there. And you've also been named one of the 20 smartest coaches in the world, one of the most 100 most influential people in fitness. And so when you see those accolades and you sit back and reflect on what you have built and what you continue to build, what are some of the emotions and thoughts that come to mind? Simply put, it's just super cool. You know, like the opportunities that I've been given to work with some cool companies and very specifically, I mean, putting whatever Apple, Nike on my resume or CV is great from a professional standpoint, but ultimately you don't work with companies, you work with people, right? And so some of the people that I've gotten the chance to work with at some of these organizations, uh, that's, that's been really awesome because over the course of your career, if you're lucky, maybe you get to work with some really, really top-notch people X percent of the time, 20, 30 percent of the time, right? People that are just really intelligent, really uh, motivated, um, people who can get things done. And so, you know, that's one of my favorite parts about the whole thing, which is you end up working with more of those people because you get to work with leaders at some of the biggest organizations in the world. So you're like, oh man, this is like my dream. I, you know, I'd love to be surrounded with really, really talented people and working with them regularly. And, and that's a little bit of a pipe dream. Like every minute of every day is like the perfect work day. And that every person that you ever interact with or contract with or work with is amazing. That's not reality, but if you can even just increase it by like 10%. So 10% of the time work with higher quality people. And I don't mean as like humans, you know, although that's great too. Uh, I mean, professionally as well. So that's the coolest part of, of some of the things that I've been able to do in terms of consulting and some of the things we've been able to do in our company. It's just be around really great people that are growth minded, that have a, you know, this thing that has been talked about so often lately, a growth mindset. Uh, and it's just kind of inspirational because it not only allows you to do great work sometimes, it actually allows you to grow as a person through all these interactions. So that's the big thing for me. I'm like, it's really impressive to say, oh, Dr. Berardi has worked with Apple and Nike and whatever. Um, but mostly really what, what, what I feel is grateful for being able to work with cool people uh, regularly, you know, because that's not a guarantee for everyone. Totally. So, I mean, you, you've, got these relationships with with Apple and Nike and these big companies. How did you begin to develop and nurture that relationship? Did they approach you? Was it an opportunity that just happened to you had to happen to be in the right place, right time? How did those relationships develop? You know, I I think part of it is kind of like uh, growing a garden. You know, you need to start by preparing the soil really well, you know? So you can talk about the seeds and the plants and how much you're watering, but the soil has to be good in the first place and your process has to be good. So for me, you know, it's never been a goal of mine where I wrote it down in my 10 year plan to do some of these things. A lot of these things were just surprises, you know, they're like, whoa, 
And, and Phil Caravaggio, who started Precision Nutrition with me, I'll email him and be like, hey, dude, the craziest thing just happened. I got an email from this person at whatever company and they want to fly me out and talk about, you know, whatever, whether it's nutrition or behavior change or health technology. Isn't that crazy? You know, and he'll be like, yeah, super cool. So it's it's never been on my radar. You know, there's a lot of young people who follow my career and they're like, man, I love nutrition. I love science. I love fitness. I love health. How do I create a curriculum to become the next you? And I'm like, God, that's it's a hard question for me to answer. And maybe it's just for me to answer uh, is difficult. I never intended to be this in the first place. You know, I was going to med school and this, everything that I'm doing right now is awesome, but it was never part of the plan. For me, I remember being exposed to these ideas when I was like 19 or 20 about how you should write out your five-year plan and, and that kind of a thing. And I know this works for some people, so I'm not saying it's bad. It just never resonated with me because I'm like, I'm a ve- I can become a very uh, focused person like to a fault. You know, I often say that like some people's greatest superpowers, it's, it's also their greatest kryptonite, right? So every skill or trait that we have could also become our undoing in the wrong context. So for me, I can be laser focused. Like I could sit at my desk here and probably work for 36 hours straight without eating or taking a break or anything like that. Um, now, in one context, that's really positive, but in a whole host of others, it would be my undoing. So five-year plans and stuff like that, what would happen is I would get so focused on what I wrote down as a 19-year-old, I'd be like a 28-year-old sitting there sticking to the plan because that's what I do, you know? And I could have missed a whole ton of opportunities. So for me, one was having the soil right, right? It was basically just working hard and being really committed to doing high, high quality work. So that was the first thing. And then I think people notice that they're like, whoa, in this field, no one's doing the kind of quality work that you guys are doing. That's very interesting. And then people invite you to things and you go to them and it's not come to this thing so we can see if you're going to be a good fit as a consultant for X company. It's, hey, we like the work that you're doing we're inviting you to a thing and you go there and you just be cool. Because again, it's not my goal. I'm not there to secure a contract with whatever company. I'm just there to be a cool person to see if I can learn something uh, that I can bring back and do good work in my life. And then it just kind of, you find yourself down this path where people are like, all right, well, that guy's not trying to sell me anything. That guy's not trying to like ham fistedly work his way into our organization, just being a cool person with a growth mindset, willing to learn. And then you just get random emails out of the blue, you know? So now if it was your goal to become a consultant for these kind of fortune 100 companies or whatever, don't take my advice at all. (laughs) This this may not be good advice, but this is how it happened for me. And, And even though, you know, this might not be your scenario, I think there are some nuggets in there for sure. You know, I see people try too hard all the time and trying too hard often is not it's it's again is it a strength or a weakness in some context it's a strength but in this particular context it's a weakness because these companies have millions of people who, are, who want to work with them for nothing you know what i mean they're like just give me some shoes and let me use your logo and it's good you know yeah and um so if you show up in the same mindset 
it doesn't work out, right? Because people can feel that. They're, they're used to being around people. They're used to being around people who want something from them. So my whole thing is I do want something from you, but it's just to learn. Mm-hmm. Just, just to be present and learn and interact with other cool human beings. It's a whole different mind space to be at. And then again, you know, I think that's why sometimes I'll get a call out of the blue and say, hey, we love your work. We met at this thing. We thought you were super cool and not annoying very much. (laughs) I'd love to have you out to just talk about a few ideas, you know, and then leads to long-term relationships. If you're cool, when you go out to those conversations and there's many times I see people screwed up at this stage where they show up and then they're like, oh, I have to prove that I'm worth being here now. You know, I got my foot in the door. Now I need to impress everyone. And those people never last very long. Or they get all about the money right away. Hey, time for, time for me to get paid, you know? And, uh, and that's a disaster also. So it's just, you know, I, I always find you just have to like, once you've gotten your foot in the door, be less needy than everyone else, less sort of overtly aspirational than everyone else, less, okay, it's time to get paid, you know, less, oh, look at how smart I am. Um, and again, just growth mindset, is really the key for me because what it means for those of you listening who haven't heard about some of this research and stuff, it's just about the idea that, uh, I don't know, here's how I think of it. I'm constantly scouring the landscape for interesting people and interesting things to learn, which means I ask like 10 questions to every thing I say as an answer. And so I, I think that's just rare enough that people find it refreshing and it opens a bunch of big doors. You mentioned a, a whole handful of things there that I'd love to touch on. One of which is the idea that you getting to work for with Apple and Nike and some of these innovative and disruptive companies is a huge win for you, not just monetarily, but because you get to surround yourself with the leaders and the innovators that are changing the world of technology not only do you get to impact them and their employees and their community but you get a little peek into a world that is generally behind closed doors and you get to tap some of these minds and then take what you've learned and apply that in your own business is that an accurate statement absolutely it's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing you know one of the companies you know and and uh Yeah, I'll mention this. Like, here's a great example of that. You know, I was at a sort of brainstorming session with one of the companies and um, we were talking about, you know, developing a new thing. And what they do is this great exercise where they write down, you know, like, okay, if we develop this, this thing, you know, they have like sort of like a framework. And it's like, okay, who is this going to serve? How is it going to serve them? You know, why are we doing whatever? And the last question I was like, blew my mind, right? It was like, what industries are going to be created for the people that we choose not to serve with this technology, right? So in other words, there's, there's not a piece of technology that's going to serve everyone. Either it's not functional or useful for everyone, or it's not psychologically palatable for everyone. So if we create this, you know, we're going to get the market and we've identified them really, really well, but then we're going to create a vacuum 
for the not market, you know what I mean? For the people who would never buy this, either the people who are more advanced than this or the people who it would be psychologically palatable for. So the question just becomes, what void does the creation of this product leave? And who may fill it? And even more interesting, who do we want to fill it, right? So, so here are these companies who are owning what they own, and then they're also masterminding what they won't own. And who's going to own that? And they'll literally make the calls and be like, hey, we're going to develop this thing. It's going to create a huge hole in the market for this other thing. How would you like to build that? And it's like, I don't know, it's this like, it, if it's done well and in an ethical way, it's like this amazing product masterminding that goes well beyond, hey, we're going to build a cool thing and hope the world likes it, right? We're, we're going to shape the entire world with, with this whole suite of things, uh, 80% of which you will never build, but we're going to have a hand in who builds it and how it's built. And little things like that, and this happens all frequently, you know, if you just kick back and listen, and you get to be part of these things, you get to bring these things back in your business, um, and it, you, just, you just learn a ton. That is incredible. I, I never would have thought that a company, some of these big companies would be brainstorming how to create markets for other people. You know, I mean, it's it's a concept of generosity that you don't really think many of these Fortune 500 companies actually possess today. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you said, you, you get people asking you how they can become the next you, basically. Don't you think that's the wrong question? Yeah, I mean, I get where it's coming from. You know, they're maybe a, a graduate student. They're young. They're ambitious. These are all wonderful things, right? So I hesitate to like poop all over their question. You know what I mean? <laughs> and be like, nah, ask another. You know? But I think uh, I think it is just a little bit off, and that's why my answer is always the interesting thing is I never wanted to be the me that you see today either. Not that I dislike it, but that was never the goal. That was never the intention. You know, here's what, here's what happened. I um, was doing an undergrad degree and it was in pre-med and then I was going to go to med school. And then on literally like the 11th hour when I was getting ready to ship out a few months from the start, I was just like, ah, I, I had an, just this moment where I'm like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't actually like this enough. Um, you know, I grew up in an immigrant family and you become a doctor or a lawyer because those are good jobs, you know, and that's how, and then you could tell all the cousins and the relatives that I'm successful, you know, and <laughs> it, it also seemed hard. Like I heard how difficult medical school was. So I felt like a great challenge. Right. So I'm like, all right, cool. I've been sort of preloaded with this gravity pulling me towards professional degree. and it seems really challenging and that's what I'm in for right now, challenge. But it occurred to me, like, I don't actually think I want to do this. I don't think I like this. So that was where I had a huge epiphany. I'm like, you know what? Okay. I'm going to reject a medical school acceptance letter. If I'm going to do that from now on, I'm only going to do what I like. You know what I mean? It was like a big watershed moment because that path was already aligned for me. I could have gone and done that and maybe I'd be a physician today. Mm-hmm. This, you know, this, this is a, an interesting way to segue into the whole kind of behavior change idea because, you know, it's something you started talking about in the beginning of 
uh, our conversation in part one or at the end of our conversation in part one. And I was going to bring it up anyway, because, you know, you've been referred to as a master of behavior change. And it's an interesting concept, behavior and developing your own behavior as opposed to responding to, you know, the the instructions or the desires of others. So I would love to maybe we can start with kind of what your definition of behavior change is and how you're you've applied that in the nutrition industry and how you're taking that way outside of that industry at large. Yeah. Well, you know, one of my favorite analogies here to help people understand what I'm talking about is this old adage that um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. I mean, essentially what that old adage is saying is that, um, you know, uh, unless people really want to change, unless they want to drink the water, we have we can have no impact on their drinking, you know, and I, I disagree. You know, I mean, I, I think you can't physically force someone to drink the water or change. But the one thing that we usually say in response to you can lead a horse to water, but can't make them drink is, yep, that is exactly right. But you can make the horse very, very thirsty. And to me, that's what behavior change is. You can't force anyone or trick anyone or do Jedi mind tricks on people to get them to change. And that's what a lot of young people in any field who learn about NLP or change psychology literature and stuff like that think. They're like, tell me the magic words to get someone who's resistant to change to just change. And while it makes for great online information products and stuff, it's not really how it works. What you can do, though, is you can make people very, very thirsty. You can put them in a position where they decide to change themselves. And that's usually the best we can hope for. You know, at at Precision Nutrition, we've coached over 50,000 people now online. And then through our software platform and curriculum platform we created, the coaches that are certified with us have coached like another 100,000. So we we now have direct experience with about 150,000 people who want to eat better, look better, feel better, lower their cholesterol scores, you know, show up in their lives in a more healthy and engaged way. And um, so I have a little experience with this, you know, <laughs> and, and there's this notion, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's great for you guys, but your clients must be special to be able to do this, you know. There must be something different. The answer is no, of course they're not different or special. It's that we understand that you, you uh, I, I, I guess a little background in our field would be helpful. You know, in health and fitness, generally, the way to help someone eat better and exercise better is to write them a diet plan. So you're like, hey, here's what you're going to eat from now on. Breakfast, these foods. Lunch, these foods. Dinner, these foods. Then then you're going to go to the gym four times a week. And when you go to the gym, you're going to do these exercises, this exact amount of sets, this exact amount of reps. So it's a very prescriptive, what we call coach-centered approach. It's, I am an expert in this field. I am a, you know, oracle of higher learning in this space. So you're going to come to me and I'm just going to tell you what to do. Do this, not that. There's even a book called that. <laughs> and, uh, and go do it. And in the, the fitness space, 
you know, trainers and nutrition coaches have sort of embraced this because quite frankly, it's the easiest possible way to coach, not effective, but it's really easy to just write down. I know that eggs or whatever you like for breakfast as a coach helps. So I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you that. There's no dialogue. There's no client at all in this, which is the great irony because clients often ask, well, I want to individualized plan, a personal plan. (laughs) Well, you're not getting anything personal. There's none of you in it at all, right? The coaches told you to eat things that you don't even know if you like. That's not personal in any way, shape, or form. That is the um, identification of a templated, coach-centered kind of approach, right? So at uh, at Precision Nutrition, our, our take is completely different. You know, how do we engage with a client in a way that recognizes the realities of their life today and help them make changes that will not be project-based, but lifestyle-based. Project-based is, hey, over the next uh, 24 weeks, if you eat this way and exercise this way, you'll get in wicked shape. Now, that may be true, but what do you have to give up to do that? Well, for a lot of people, it may be less time with their family. It may be less commitment and focus on work. It may be that they have certain hobbies that they like to do that they can't do for the next 24 weeks, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why is this Dr. Barati guy talking crazy talk though? I'm willing to spend like a few hours a week less with my family and and a few hours less at work and maybe not do my hobby for 24 weeks if it's going to get me in wicked shape. Herein lies the problem though. At the end of those 24 weeks, do you want to try your hobby again? Your kids are going to be demanding more time with daddy or mommy. Your work is going to say, hey, you don't seem as focused and committed. So what's going to happen then? Well, what's going to happen is your life will now infiltrate your fitness mission and you won't be doing any of the things or at least the things that got you to the 24-week goal and you're going to backslide or gain weight again or lose your results. And it's just happened so many times to people And I feel so sad because the fitness industry and the nutrition industry's motto at that point is, uh, well, you fell off the wagon. You did it. You need to take some personal responsibility for your life. If you want this badly enough, you would have kept it up, but you suck. So you didn't, right? That's, (laughs) That's the narrative people are getting. And it makes me sad. And in some cases, it breaks my heart when I meet real individuals who actually are so down on themselves because they feel like they have failed. You have to understand the big picture to realize, no, 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 the whole model is the failure. The idea that I'm going to impose something above and beyond your normal life, which is probably already full and busy. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably are ambitious. You probably are growth-minded. You probably are hard-driving. So your life's busy. And then we're going to impose this extra thing on top of it. Where are you going to get the extra time? You're not getting extra time. You have to carve away something else, right? And then at some point, those things that you carved away are going to have to come back. And then you're not going to be able to do the fitness thing the way you just did it for the last 12 or 24 weeks. And then what? Well, then the inevitable is going to happen. You're going to gain weight back. You're going to not be eating well enough again. And then some point down the line, you'll get heavy. Most people heavier than they were when they started. And then they're going to be like, oh, I have to do the thing that worked again, the 24-week thing. Remember how well that worked for me? And that is the great irony because it didn't work. It worked for 24 weeks. 
but it didn't work in the long run, which is why you're saying you have to do the 24 weeks again. So when we look at behavior change and change psychology, the idea is how can we build practices and habits into your life that integrate with your real life as it is today? And those are things, skills that you build that you can take with you into the future so that you don't have this orgy of fitness for 24 weeks and then nothing in fitness for some period of time and then feel bad about yourself and then have to do it again. And I mean, that's the definition of the yo-yo dieting experience. And we usually blame the person, but it's not the person, it's the system. Hmm. I'm super interested in, in learning about like the process of quote unquote, making somebody thirsty and, and getting them to this point where they're, they're embracing and running to these lifestyle changes as opposed to this yo-yo thing, which I've experienced in my own life. And how does willpower, which is a finite resource, you know, we're talking a lot about change psychology. Maybe that's a myth. Maybe that's just something that people have read. And so we've come to believe that maybe Maybe that's the antithesis of the growth mindset is believing that willpower is a finite resource. Right. Yeah. Willpower is interesting, right? Because we often say willpower has no place in a fitness experience for people. And that really gets their hackles up immediately. So let's talk about willpower for a minute. First of all, there is this belief that willpower is a finite resource. There was some research done in the 90s and early 2000s hinting at this idea that if early in the day you use a lot of your willpower, you know, because of a lot of difficult decisions you have to make or things you have to say no to later in the day, your willpower resource will be depleted and you'll make decisions that you might not otherwise have wanted to make. Well, there's a whole group of researchers that have now worked on that question and it's now qualified. It hasn't been debunked and people are like, oh, it's been debunked. That's a myth. It's actually not. But it's really fascinating what is true, or at least true as we know it today. What's true as we know it about willpower today is that willpower is a finite resource or a feed-forward resource, depending upon what you believe it is. This is the beauty and the, I don't know, mind-twisting reality of psychology. If you believe willpower is a finite resource, then it will be for you. By the end of the day, you'll be like, I made so many difficult decisions today. I don't have any more to decide to go to the gym or decide to spend extra time with my family or decide to work on that evening course that I'm doing, right? But if you believe willpower is a muscle that gets strengthened, not weakened with use, kind of like strength training, then you will actually have more power, willpower, after exercising it. And so the belief that willpower is a finite resource is the very thing that makes it a finite resource for you. If it is something you believe that gets strengthened and next time I have to use it, it's stronger, then it becomes that as well. So that's the interesting part about willpower, at least what we know of it today from the the psychology literature, um, which does poke a little hole in that idea that, oh yeah, you know, you, you, if you have to make a lot of decisions and, and I mean, this is the classic example of like the the Steve Jobs turtleneck, right? Like, oh yeah, well, okay, eliminate that decision or that willpower, that choice fatigue. So just wear the same shirt every day. And then somehow you'll have more energy to choose later. Really, really important stuff. I don't know. I don't know that the psychology literature bears that out, but it's a fun little pop psychology discussion. 
But we say that willpower is irrelevant in real behavior change because willpower speaks to the very thing that we want to avoid when trying to change your life, right? I don't want you to have to white knuckle your way to a fitness change or to a professional change or to any lifestyle change. I want it to feel like it's a natural part of your existence. And the way to do that is we have this system that we we use whenever we work with someone through a change, whether that's uh, helping them sleep better or whether that's helping them eat better or whether that's helping them with other lifestyle things like stress management. We have, it's like a grid. And so uh, we don't do this with the clients per se. This is though how we plan their curriculum, right? So the idea is we don't achieve goals by simply setting them. Goals are achieved through the development of skills that you don't have today. And those skills are what help you achieve a goal. The development of skills doesn't happen naturally. It comes through daily practice. So I often talk about learning to play an instrument, right? The reason you practice is so that you can develop neural connections between, let's say, if you're learning the guitar, your fingers and your brain. You practice so that you can get lots of reps at reading music. So you know what those notes represent and you can quickly transform what is just a bit of ink on a page into an understanding of where on the, on the, the, the fretboard your finger should be and a very quick impulse from your brain to your finger to put your finger in that place. That stuff doesn't happen because you want it to. It only happens through practice where things that were once totally novel become second nature. It just gets ingrained into your nervous system. So that's why practice leads to skills and skills lead to goal, right? You can't just be like, hey, I want to learn, you know, all along the watchtower on the guitar. And because I want it, it's going to happen. No. And you can't just practice all along the watchtower a thousand times and be awesome at it. You know, generally we need to do other drills unrelated to that song to build up our skill set. So the same is true with anything you want to do in your life. And this is the boring part. This is the part that the current sort of internet culture is totally glossing over. And in fact, saying the opposite growth hacking, right? You know, all the stuff around, um, accelerated learning, I think is interesting to some extent, but it actually undercuts the whole principle of what it takes to actually master or develop mastery in something, which is boring, rote, fundamental practice, right? So, so we try and turn learning anything into a series of daily practices that build specific skills that lead you to that goal. So for example, going back to the meal plan, the 12 week thing, right? So what do you do if you don't build up any fundamental hunger and appetite awareness skills? or movement skills, or scheduling skills, which is important. Like, how are you going to schedule your workout and your healthy meals? If you don't build those things fundamentally, you, and you just say, hey, for the next 12 weeks, forget everything else. I'm going to follow this meal plan, and I hope the wheels don't fall off the bus. <laughs> You're going to build a particular set of skills that are non-transferable to the rest of your experience in life. You'll be, like, really good at following a 12-week meal plan. Right. And shutting out your family and faking it at work and whatever. Right. 
But what we rather have you work on during those 12 weeks and beyond is the development of skills that are transferable, that help you find a way to work out even on your busiest of days, help you find a way to eat well even on your most stressful moments where you would naturally turn to emotional eating, help you figure out how to eat the right portions on Christmas or Thanksgiving where there's just an orgy of food for like eight days in a row. Those skills you can take with you to all the scenarios that aren't dieting scenarios, which help you stay consistent for your entire life. So I'll give some examples here with food. You know, we believe that in order for people to eat better, they have to build some fundamental appetite awareness skills, which means they need to learn when they're actually hungry and when they're not hungry. What is physiological hunger and what is something else like emotional reactions? So, for example, a lot that I mean, uh, I don't know how many listeners know this, but, you know, your gut and the nervous system that innervates your gut, that interacts with your gut, that comes from your gut cells um, is often called your second brain. And the, the reason is because a lot of neurotransmitters and hormones and communication methods are similar. And there's a direct link between one and the other, your brain and your gut. Oftentimes, when people feel strong emotions, whether it be sadness or happiness or whatever the case is, that signaling takes place not only in your brain, but in your gut as well. And they may confuse those feelings for hunger. And so it's this really fascinating scientific phenomenon where you actually see people, they're not physiologically hungry, but they believe they're hungry, not because they're like defective in the brain, but because you're getting some of the same signals through some of the same neural pathways at your brain level and at your gut level, your second brain. So it's no surprise that sometimes people confuse boredom or stress or anxiety or sadness or elation or joy with hunger. You can see it in kids all the time. I have four of them. And our third child is, is our um, hearty eater, you know? <laughs> and whenever he's feeling strong emotions, he self-soothes with food. Um, and one, you know, we know that when you eat, it releases chemicals that calm you down. But I don't think he's gotten that yet. I think that he confuses strong emotions for hunger. And so that's, that's, what ha- that's what's happening with him. And it happens with adults as well. So if you don't know that, I mean, intellectually knowing that is one thing, but uh, you can't trick yourself. You have to build the skill of recognizing true hunger. So for us, beginning all healthy eating projects has to do with appetite and hunger awareness. But how do you do that, right? I mean, if you take the example of people who talk about mindfulness nowadays, uh, what you do is you wag your finger at people and tell them to pay more attention to their lives, right? That doesn't help, though. That is just an entreaty to change. All that is, you should pay more attention to your life. We need to be more mindful. All that is is finger wagging at people, telling them to do something that they don't have the skill yet to do. How do you become more mindful is the question. What are the practices? What can I do five minutes today that helps me be more mindful? Well, there's something you can do for food in that way. Uh, The first thing that we do is have people slow down their eating. So for two weeks, we have them practice this particular thing. That sounds goofy when I talk about it on podcasts, but there's lessons and there's little instructions associated with it. But the idea is every day for the next two weeks, each time you eat, 
you're simply going to slow down. And here's what slowing down looks like. And if you need an app or a timer to do it, fine, but you don't need those things. And the act of slowing down your eating does several things that are awesome. And it doesn't feel like much. You're like, wait, shouldn't I just eat less pizza? That's what I need to do to get in shape, right? And the answer is no, no. I mean, yes, eventually you will eat less pizza, but we're going to do it without banning pizza. We're going to do it by making you pay attention in the first place. Because if I give you the same amount of pizza as I give myself, and you eat slowly and I eat quickly, I'll eat more every time. So we can reduce your pizza by just slowing you down. And that works for two reasons. One is a physiological reason. Uh, It takes about 15 or 20 minutes for our guts to tell our brain, hey, I've gotten enough to eat. So once you've eaten to satisfaction, your brain doesn't know it yet. It takes like 15 or 20 minutes for your brain to say, oh, hey, I'm satisfied. You can stop now. And if you're eating quickly, you could overeat by 20, 30, 40% before your brain actually gets the cue. You can stop now. And you've done this in your life. I've done this in my life where I kept going. And then finally, when my brain told me to stop, I was deeply uncomfortable, you know? (laughs) And so that little lag there is what eating slowly helps with. But there's a second one. Generally, when we slow down our eating, we pay attention to what we're eating, the sense, the tastes. We have this exercise called the consciousness raisin, right? Where we actually have people eat like five raisins, but it has to take them a long time and they have to chew each raisin X amount of times. And and then we have them report what they experience. Now, this isn't something you do every day. This isn't a new diet plan. This is something you do one time, right? As an awareness builder. And people come back with the craziest things. They're like, man, I used to think I like raisins. I don't. Or, hey, I always hated raisins and now I like them. Because the act of slowing down your chewing, of slowing down the eating, of chewing a raisin X amount of times makes you aware of all kinds of things you wouldn't have paid attention to. It's like stopping to smell the roses, you know? Uh, You might not have noticed them otherwise. So it actually tunes you into your eating experience in a new way. I've had people tell me, hey, I tried eating my favorite candy slowly, and it is disgusting. Like, it just tastes like a, a little ball of chemicals. I just always ate it quickly, so I got the sugar high without tasting the nastiness. And now for the first time, I've tasted the nastiness and I'll never eat that candy again. And so slowing down your eating is the first practice. And we really lean into that for two weeks. And then the next thing we work on is once you're aware that you can slow down, that eating is not an emergency, that no one's going to take your food, then we can actually have you work on what we call eating to 80% full, which is another way of saying it is eat to satisfied, not stuffed. Until you've learned to eat slowly and pay attention, 80% full is meaningless. You won't, you won't know how to feel that. But once you have, plus some instruction that we give, you can work on eating to satisfied, not stuffed for another two weeks or whatever. And in that month, you've built fundamental skills through daily practice that lead you to having this great appetite awareness. Now, there's a whole bunch of this dialogue on the internet right now about whether you should write down what you eat and track it on something like MyFitnessPal. I ate 8,000 calories today, whoops, or I ate 2,500 right in my zone versus what some people call intuitive eating. And they make this weird dichotomy, you know? And most people are like, oh yes, if I tried to eat intuitively, I would eat ice cream and cookies all day and way too many calories, right? 
Well, the answer is, of course he would. Just like if you tried to play a masterpiece on the guitar without any skill development. Yes, you would suck. You just told me something that humans have known for all of time. Thank you for the deep insight. (laughs) Yes, you're not going to be very good at intuitive eating unless you develop the skill through daily practice. So that's what we work on. So that, that's just an example. Our, our coaching program is 12 months in duration. So there are about 24 practices that we work on to build 12 essential skills, which are skills that will not only help you be in shape, but take that with you to the rest of your life and apply it in any situation in your life. And we, we often say the goal, and I think this is with fitness, I think this is with any personal development project, is you choose a set of practices that you can do on your worst day, not just your best. Hmm. You know, people plan their personal development around what they might be able to do on their best day where everything went right. Our motto is, no, no, pick the worst day. You know, I, I, I know you have a few children as well. Four. Yeah, like, yeah, just like me. Uh, <laughs> days, days are amazing sometimes. But things can really go off the rails pretty quickly, you know, some days. So you might have a bad day working or a challenging day or frustrating day or whatever. And you may come home late and you may be late for your daughter's recital. And then you get home and the dog is pooped on the floor. And then one of your kids has poured a whole bottle of olive oil in the kitchen, you know, uh, while you're cooking dinner. And so you were supposed to get to the gym today. Ah, okay. That's an example of a not so great day. Or... You know, there's, there's all kinds of other examples far worse that are, are, are bigger impact but lower in, on the disruption scale. But the idea is, what could you do? What does your plan say about days like that? If it doesn't say anything about days like that, then it's not built for a real human life. It's built for a theoretical, disjointed, unconnected type of living, right? Where you're like, Meh, yeah, okay, great. I'll put my two hours of study for my evening course into the mix where I don't even have two hours. Well, that's a recipe for failure. So that's what we say. You know, you have to choose practices that you can do on your best day, not on your worst. So an example of maybe the gym thing there is, do I have a 10 minute in my living room body weight workout that I can do as a backup in case that dog poo, olive oil, bad day at work happens, right? So instead of being like, oh, it's all blown, and then tomorrow's going to suck too. I just know it. I'm just like, oh, you know what? I already anticipated this. If you've got four young kids, you've got to anticipate this, you know? Um, it's like when people who uh, live outside the city and they drive into work and there's always traffic complain about being late because of the traffic. You're like, okay, there's a certain point where that excuse expires. There's traffic every day. You can't blame the traffic. You have to anticipate and plan for it. And and so that's that's what we say there. You know, Uh, it might be a 10 minute body weight circuit that you do in the living room after you pick up the poo. (laughs) Exactly. I've been there. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. 
Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. Now, how, how do you take, you've got, you know, approximately 150,000 human beings that you've worked with and, and developed your behavior change philosophy with over the course of running your business. And you've got this great data now and this great success track record. And these companies are coming to you. Have you like formulated this process that enables you to take it to an Apple or a Nike and kind of plug and play? Or is it uh, completely adapted? How are you taking what you've learned and applying it to these other industries? Yeah, well, you know, that's a great question. And the answer is maybe not as intuitive, but it's fun. Um, So Apple, for example, if you've ever seen how they do various apps and things, you know, it's not the same philosophy as, as we have. You know, we like immersive experiences, practicing every day, skill develop, uh, skill development over time, and things that fit into your life. Apple does that even more stripped down. I, I don't know if you have an Apple Watch. I, I have one. They, they gave me one when, uh, you know, when the newest version came out, which was awesome. And if you look at how they do, let's say, activity tracking or mindfulness on the watch, so the watch's meditation slash mindfulness experience is an app called Breathe. It comes preloaded on the phone, or sorry, on the watch. And just periodically throughout the day, it taps you and asks you to take a minute to breathe. And it actually prompts you using this sort of taptic technology, which is just basically little sensors that are underneath the watch face that touch your skin. And it like taps you to breathe in and then taps you to breathe out. So it actually regulates a particular pace of breathing. And it just has you breathe seven times, a couple times a day. And if you do it infrequently, it bothers you to do it less. And if you do it more, it gives you a little bit more. And gives you the option to breathe 10 breaths if you want or whatever. So you think about like med- people who are into meditation, right? And you think about this and you'd be like, hey, guru of meditation, what do you think of the Apple Watch and their Breathe app? And they're going to think it's watered down for the masses, right? They're going to be like, oh, but meditation is so much more. It's so much richer. But the fundamental reality is people aren't even approaching it. (laughs) And what Apple's trying to do is give them some little doses of what quiet mindfulness might look like throughout the day. Their activity thing is similar. It's got these rings. One ring is for just movement. Second ring is for intense activity. Third ring is for standing, and it, it tracks basically how much of each that you do in a day. And if you close the rings, in other words, you get the full number of stands in a day, movement and act, like exercise activity or intense activity, then you win the day or whatever, right? So all these, I, I share these things not because I'm shilling for Apple here, but because I think we have to look at their principle. And the principle is that, and this I, I coined this, Uh, not too long ago, with respect to how Apple develops things in health and fitness, it's they're looking for the almost nothing that leads to something. Mm -hmm. So it's what is the absolute tiniest thing that real aficionados in this space would scoff and laugh at, right? But 
is enough to make a change and set off a chain reaction that will lead to someone becoming a different person or living their life differently. I love that. They're, they're making them thirsty. That's exactly it, man. That's exactly it. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a exact, that's a perfect example of what you said earlier about making the horse thirsty. You got it right. So, I mean, if I just do the breathing on my watch and never go any further, then I'm further ahead than I was before. Is it perfect? No, but I was doing zero and two is better than zero every time. But it might also make me say, hey, what else is there? This breathing has really helped me in some important ways. I wonder if I started yoga or did deep breathing exercises or learned about breathing or decided to actually meditate. So it may lead you down this path also. So the worst case scenario is that you just do a little bit of it and nothing more. And that's still better than where you were before. And the best case scenario is you actually practice more, develop particular skills that help you manage your stress, uh, calm and, and clear your mind, or in the case of exercise, that help you exercise a little more, do a little more purposeful movement, etc. So I, I bring all that up because, you know, I think what we do at Precision Nutrition is more towards the, you know, that, that scale of where people get serious about this, or they're, they're beyond the Apple Watch phase. And now they want to go a little bit deeper. We're the answer to that last question that I talked about earlier, right? What market will this create if we put a nutrition thing on an Apple Watch? Um, well, what Precision Nutrition does, right? Um, but what learning about the Apple model, for example, uh, has helped me with is asking the question, are we simple enough? Are we close enough to that little thing? you know, the almost nothing that leads to something. And, you know, for everyone listening, you know, obviously I, I work in health and fitness and health and fitness technology and nutrition. So a lot of my examples are, are around that. But if you don't, all you have to do is take the principles and think about it in the context of what you do, right? Is there some change in your life you want to make? You know, whether it's relationships, whether it's work, any of those things, well, these same principles apply. So don't lose the principle for the example, you know, it's just, this is just generally hard. It's really hard for humans. What we like, think we like is to build ourselves up for a big project. And once in a while, maybe that works. If a whole host of unseen forces collude to help us be successful. Uh, but generally, reliably, there's a way to actually set a goal and achieve it, you know, more times out of 10 than the other. And that's what we're talking about here. It's creating a bit of a curriculum. And, you know, I, I mean, I do this now all the time. It's annoying in some cases where I'll want to learn a new thing and I'll hire a coach and I'll be like, hey, coach, I want to go through your process. But here's how I think about skill development. Um, can we fill out this little chart that I have? <laughs> So I'm like, I want to speak Italian fluently. So here, what skills will I need to do that? Okay, cool. Let's write them in these boxes, coach. All right. And what practices am I going to have to do? Now, talented coaches have a curriculum like this, whether they've written it down or not. You know, I, my daughter's in gymnastics and, and I've been taking her since she was 18 months old and now she's seven. And I've watched how the coaches take her through a long-term athlete development 
curriculum. You know, when you're 18 months old, your head's too big for your body. You can't even walk straight. You know what I mean? Let alone tumble and do one-legged balancing activities. So you watch a curriculum unfold. That's what it is. And I'm kind of a systems thinker. So for me, I want the curtain removed. You know, I want to know what the curriculum is, what the long-term development model is. It, it helps me to know that then I have to turn that part of my brain off and go practice. But I just think that, you know, whether it's learning gymnastics, learning to eat well, whether it's, you know, learning to be a better partner and parent, whether it's uh, learning particular skills professionally that you want to develop, all these things benefit from the same model because we're not talking about nutrition here. We're talking about behavior change. And that's how, where we started, right? It is the best practices and the science of change psychology. It's just how people operate. And that's been the most fascinating part of my career where I started out wanting to know about the science of nutrition. And I learned very quickly that the more that I learned, the worse I became as a coach. Hmm. I could have been a great researcher if I just kept going on that path, right? But when it came to working with human beings, real people, uh, that information meets human psychology. That's the interface, right? And so it takes us back to the lead the horse to water thing, right? It, uh, among highly educated people in any field, that's the mantra. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. In other words, I wash my hands of the responsibility of helping a human actually become the thing they want to become. My job here is only to tell them what they need to know. It's up to them to do the rest. Well, there became a point in my career where I was like, that's not good enough. It's not good enough as a coach. What your job becomes is not only giving them the information, but giving it to them in a way that actually helps them become the thing they want to become. And, and, and it ties right back into what I was just going to ask, which is about the whole developing a solution that's almost nothing. So it becomes something, how that's done is a, is an, is an art. And I would imagine that when you guys at Precision Nutrition are coming up or designing a new solution or a new idea, you're throwing every possible solution up on the board and then literally taking it apart piece by piece to see what is actually necessary. Is that, is, that, is that how you create? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an analogy I often use in the, in the strength training world, which is there are a few complicated movements like Olympic lifts. Like if you ever watch weightlifting in the Olympics, you know, and these seemingly tiny people are taking 200, 300 kilos and they're cleaning it up to their shoulders from the ground and then putting it over their head. These are really complicated movements. They work almost all the muscles in the body, over all joint ranges. And so my analogy is, you know, people who teach exercise don't ever expect someone to come in on day one and, and they give them a bar and then they go, here, here is an Olympic clean and jerk. And they demonstrate it and then go, okay, now you try it. <laughs> you know, that never happens because in that area of expertise. It's been well trained that these are complicated movements that need practice and skill development for someone to achieve. And also they need limiting factors to be removed. So the first thing you might do in that scenario is actually do a movement assessment with someone and say, can your joints even move in these degrees, uh, in these ranges? Because if they can, then there's no 
chance in, in you ever doing this movement, light or heavy. So then after movement assessment, you may do a bunch of exercises and drills to ensure that there's balance across different joints and total mobility. Then after weeks or maybe even months, you start working on chunks of the complicated movement. So now we're going to just lift it to your knees. Okay, now we're going to go from knees to hips, from hips to shoulder, shoulder to overhead. And that's another few weeks or months. And then finally, you put it all together in one thing. So it's, it's um, limiting factor removal, then chunking. Then you work on the actual skill with no load. And then you start the loading process over time. So that is how we think about building curriculum. That's how we think about nutrition coaching. I'm like, okay, what do I need to ask to make sure we remove your limiting factors? In nutrition, it might be a hormonal imbalance or it might be a scheduling problem or an environmental thing, you know? So how do we work to move those things out of the way? Then what skills are you lacking? Okay, cool, then we build those in. Okay, now we can work on proteins, carbs, and fats, you know? And so- Again, for, for a lot of people who don't understand our system coming into coaching, this is tough. It's tough for them to begin with because they're like, well, why aren't you just giving me a meal plan? And so we have to work through, you know, I mean, and usually the question is, well, in your intake questionnaire, you've told us that you've followed about 16 different meal plans before. How did they work for you? <laughs> you know, I mean, let's just, let's just look back at the reality. Meal plan is what you think you need. Meal plan is what you've tried over and over again unsuccessfully. So let's try this other approach. So you're right. I mean, when we develop a curriculum, that's exactly what we do. We get out the whiteboard. We plot out what's the goal here? What's the, what's the macro goal of a coaching program? What's the micro goal of different phases of a coaching program? And then what skills do you need to accomplish that? There are particular skills that we know about that do that. and then. What practices can help you build those skills? And then we develop a curriculum based on that. And obviously, based on different goals, those practices and those, those skills are different. And then we run them. You know, we put a lot of people through them. And then we're like, oh, great. Okay, that one worked really well, but this one could probably be refined. I mean, we've been doing this now. Uh, we started our first coaching program in 2007. So we're 10 years in you know, 150,000 people in. We just published three peer-reviewed research papers in different populations on the methodology. The, the thing that's really interesting about it, and I mean, we've, we've coached a lot of people, they've lost a lot of weight, our before and afters are amazing, but the thing we're often most proud of is the consistency with which people can follow what we recommend. I mean, we have a year-long program here, right? And so when we look at how consistent people report doing their exercise or following our nutritional uh, practices each day, they both come in between 70 and 75%. In other words, you know, three out of four things that we ask people to do, and we ask them to do something every day for 365 days, they end up doing, which is remarkable. I mean, when we look at prescription medications, for example, if you aggregate, you know, kind of like life-saving, life-prolonging, heart disease, cancer, and diabetes meds, people only take their meds that they've been prescribed about 55% of the time. Hmm. And that's the magic pill, right? And so I, I always joke in fitness, people often say, oh, everyone's just looking for the magic pill. Well, I'm like, well, 
data suggests that they'd only take it half the time, even if we had the magic pill. But I have something here that's even more effective that people do 75% of the time. And that is this best practices of change psychology based curriculum. So that's, I mean, that's, that's our goal. You know, we believe if you do the things that we ask you to do seven out of 10 times, you're going to have a remarkable transformative change. Okay, cool. So then let's build curriculums for that. And the fun part is we build a whole platform to deliver this, a, a software and technology platform, which now is being applied to other processes outside of nutrition. That's awesome. So it's, you know, the methodology transcends the medium or, or sorry, the, uh, the knowledge set. It's, hey, can we coach someone to be a better, better entrepreneur? Yes, this exact way, daily practices that lead to skill development that lead to the goal. Can we teach someone to sleep better? Can we teach someone to manage their stress? Can we teach someone to quit smoking? All these types of things are programs that we're sort of developing on this particular platform, which is, again, I mean, this is just based on human psychology. I can't wait to see what you guys are creating in, in, the, in all of these kind of ancillary spaces because they definitely all tie in together and are interrelated and, and connected. And if, if one's health is improved, their sleep's obviously going to improve and their ability to lead as an entrepreneur or as a manager or a, as a husband or a wife and a father or mother is, is going to improve. And so, I mean, it's, it's incredible what you guys are doing. And as, as we conclude part two of the conversation, I want to make sure that we uh, point people in the direction where they can get in touch with you and interact with Precision Nutrition and maybe uh, become familiar with your, your services. And then I, I have kind of three rapid fire type questions that are kind of fun to conclude our conversation. But first, if you could tell everybody where they could go and, and how they should connect with Precision Nutrition. Yeah, it's super easy. People can just pop by precisionnutrition.com. Um, you know, we, we obviously share the types of products and services we offer there, but we actually have a, a blog with three articles on it that we've been running since 2003. We have over a thousand free articles on all the hot topics, totally free. You don't have to share your email address to access it. So if you're curious about any of the hot topics, like, you know, low carb or high carb diets or uh, vegan diets or ketogenic diets or paleo diets, we cover that. We do exhaustive research reports on it. We build these really cool infographics. We're really well known for those where it's just a beautiful sort of visual treatment of, of common topics. So I just encourage people to pop over there if they're interested in, in nutrition for themselves, in fitness for themselves. There's a wealth of information there. Um, also, if they're interested in this professionally, I mean, we, we have the world's largest nutrition education and certification program, and we write a lot of articles about that, like how to level up as a professional in your field. So, those, you know, again, our biggest product, quote unquote, is free. It is our content. It is all the articles that we build for people to just learn. And obviously, if you love those articles and you think you'd like to have a deeper experience, you can do one of our coaching programs or whatever. But really, the product that we probably invest most heavily in is what we give away for free, which is all of our infographics, articles, our video content, all of that. And everybody should sign up uh, regardless of whether you're in peak condition or the 
you think you're the world's best coach or whatever, because the content is incredible. It's beautifully written and delivered and it's incredibly generous what you guys put out and give away for free to the world to help make the world a better place. Now, are you ready for the, the three rapid fire questions? And you can take as long or as, as little time as you need okay. to answer these questions. I'm ready. Yes. <laughs> if you could pick any skill set you currently possess, and we've been talking a lot about skills today. So a skill set you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? My mind is swimming around um, this particular thing that I am good at, but terrible at at the same time. So often when people meet me, they'll be like, hey, you like your coaching, your coaching practices, the way that you are with people is really amazing. Like, is that second nature to you? And my answer is always no, no, no. It's like I my first response is sucky. Always. (laughs) It's terrible. It's terrible. I'm so bad at this. My first thing that pops into my head is always the wrong thing. And then like a little bit down the track when I like, all right, cool. I train myself to dismiss the wrong thing and then, you know, rely on my coaching to get me on track. That, that right there, the ability to, and, and we can call it coaching or whatever, but for me, it's actually the ability to be with people. You know, it's the ability to just talk to and be with people in a cool helpful, present way. It's, it's a skill that I have, but it's not inherent. Um, and I have to work a lot at it. If I could make it almost natural and also something that I'm way better at, uh, that would be the superpower that I would want. Uh, I grew up, but you have to know my background a little. I grew up really shy and introverted. So developing any social skills was like a engineering project for me. So that's probably why I lean in this direction. It's probably why I wanted to get so good at this and why I would try and turn it into a superpower. I just think the ability to be with people in a cool way, in a helpful way, in an empathic way is uh, rarish and, uh, and something that I would really value as a superpower. I love that, though, because what you, what you just said is, a, is, a, is another way of uh, that appetite awareness. Like It's like you're developing people skill awareness, right? And and uh, you naturally possess the ability to interact and with people, but just being aware and aware of your thoughts and being fully present. And one of the things I talk about when I'm coaching people is um, being engaged and the work that you need to do in advance in order to remain engaged in the activity that you're doing. One of which is awareness. Uh, the, the next question is what are three lies that you believe people tell themselves that prevent them from fully realizing their potential? Okay. So, um, one is that my situation is uniquely whatever. One of the greatest coaching tools I ever learned was called normalizing and normalizing is this idea that when people, um, say, I suck at this because blank. I am uniquely this because of that. One of the greatest ways, as long as it's truthful, to help them see past that, which is a fundamental barrier, is to normalize it, to tell them, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a second. You think this is you being uniquely sucky. 
but it's not. This is actually totally normal. It's what you should be thinking and feeling at this stage. It's what everyone thinks and feels at this stage. And here's the next step past that. So that, that, that lot, the lie that people tell themselves is that, oh, no, no, you don't understand my situation. Or no, no, you don't understand how horrible of a human being I am, how mentally weak, how lazy, how whatever. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a lie that stands in their way. And it's the thing that we work with most in coaching people. <laughs> no, 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 this is totally normal. This is exactly what you should be feeling at this stage. I put up a Facebook post yesterday and it's gotten a ton of attention um, where basically my son, like a minute earlier before I put up the post, comes running into my office. Now, I work from home and we, we have four children and he's three. Um, so whenever I hear the footsteps, right? I'm like, oh, there's part of me that's like, ah, oh, I'm about to get interrupted. This sucks. I wish I had a normal life where I went to work and I didn't have all these annoyances in my day. And it turns out, so this is what I'm thinking. And, and then in like 10, 9, 8, 7, he comes around the corner and he's dressed in a giraffe costume and he has like a knight helmet on, a sword. And instead of a gauntlet, he has a, a, like a Spider-Man web slinger forearm and hand on. And it's like the cutest thing ever. And I go in like 10 seconds from annoyance to just gratitude that I work from home <laughs> and that I get to have these experiences. And so I posted about it on Facebook and, and, and people really loved it. And, you know, that is just a great example of, of, of what I was talking about. This, you know, the first thing that you might think in that scenario is I'm just a horrible human. Like I have this this great opportunity to work from home and be around my kids. And the first thing I think is, oh, this is horrible. Get away. Go away from my office. I, I must really suck. I must be uniquely shitty of a human being. <laughs> and you realize very quickly, no, it's not true. Um, that's what most people think. I just had to, I just had to mute my microphone and, and uh, yell at my kids because they just are they're running up and down the hall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the gratitude part comes later. It's not the first thing you think, and that's normal. So that's, that's number one, a lie that, that you are a uniquely shitty human being uh, because of things that other people don't experience. Wrong, wrong, wrong. So that's lie number one. Uh, let me think about lie number two that people tell themselves that stands in their way of like success or development or whatever. I, I don't know how many people feel this, but I suspect it's a lot. I'm not sure if this is the exact lie, but I can figure this out on my own. I'm, I'm a smart person. I'll figure this out. Man, I spent a lot of my early life goofing around with that attitude. I, you know, I had this, uh, I had this period in my life where a, a weird set of coincidences led me to ask this question. Of all the people that I really respect and admire and look up to, I wonder how many of them have been through counseling. So then I just started asking them all. And it was crazy. Like 80% of them had been through intensive counseling or were continuing to go through intensive counseling. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is not a coincidence, right? The People who are most together, who I respect and admire the most, invest in a, you can call it a coach, right? A counselor, a therapist, whatever you want to call it. So I've, since then, I've gotten so much in my life. You know, I, when I decided to get married, I went and hired a relationship counselor because I wanted to know in advance 
the types of things we'd be facing and have skill development for that before I needed it. When we decide to have children, same. I, I use counseling as a way to prepare me for what's coming up rather than the, the common notion, which is I'm broken and I need help. I'm at rock bottom. Now, I've been in situations like that as well, where I actually have sought counseling to help me deal with a current crisis. But most of the time, it's something else. It's this letting go of the notion that I'm a smart person and I can figure this out myself uh, intellectually, right? So that's, that's the second one. Um, I feel like I'm talking myself out here, like I don't have the third one. <laughs> third, okay, uh, so I don't have one off the top of my head, but I'm going to ask you a return question. What's the most interesting one you've heard anyone say on the show? I actually liked your second, your second one right there, that, you know, it, that, that, that people think they can do it all on their own. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge believer in that. I think that you could be modestly successful on your own. So, so one of the things I, I teach is what I call the peak performance framework and peak peak stands for position, engagement, action, and kinetic. And kinetic means dependent upon movement for effect. And, but whose movement, your movement, if you just move, that's great. You're going to be as effective as you are capable of being right. But if you incorporate one, two, three, a multitude of people that are all oriented toward the same goal and objective, you're going to be that much more. You're going to be exponentially more effective. Not only that, but everybody that you encounter is going to feel what it is that you are trying to accomplish. And the analogy I use is I have a, I have a friend who is a great uh, violinist. She's trained at Juilliard. She's played all over the world. She's amazing. And she plays beautifully. But when you put her alongside a cello and a piano and all of these other instruments, it's incredibly more beautiful and more powerful what, what it is that she's able to create. And so I, I love what, what you just said there, that people lie to themselves thinking that they're going to be able to make the change that they want to make in the world, whether it's themselves or their product or a company or whatever it might be by themselves. They might be able to do it modestly by themselves, but they're not going to be nearly as effective unless they involve other people. So I love, I love that answer. Yeah, I really like that. So the third one that, that occurred to me while you were talking is this other one. It's like this little pet theory I've been working on for a, for a while now. And it's, it's this idea that it's fundamental. This is a lie that, that stands in people's way. It's fundamental that when I have to choose or make a decision, that I have to make the right decision, right? That I have to weigh, agonize, use all of my intellectual prowess to decide what to do next. And that there's a right decision and that by doing all this intellectual work, I'll find the right decision. And there there came up like I see people do this in every decision, big or small, like whether to get married, whether to have children, whether to switch jobs, what camera to buy. You know, you know, they're doing consumer reviews for 26 hours to figure out like a hundred dollar purchase. All this is based on this notion that there's a best or a right choice, and you have to do all the work up front 
to make the right choice. And why I think that's such a lie that stands in the way is that it actually puts the onus on you and your ability to discern early on uh, with a lack of experience in the thing, you know, what's good. And then second of all, it puts uh, the burden on this idea that there is a right choice. And I actually believe the opposite. I've come to believe in the last few years that there are very, very few right and wrong decisions when it comes to these things. What there is, is just the decision and then your commitment to make it right. And that all comes after the choice. So you can either put a ton of time and energy into trying to decide the right thing before you do it, and you're going to be limited, hamstrung, handicapped, because you don't know enough. You haven't done the thing yet. So you're going to have all kinds of crazy notions about it that aren't actually true in your lack of experience. Or you can commit to the thing that feels the best, that seems to check the boxes without agonizing over it, and then do all the work of making it right for your life. You know, and this this actually occurred to me when I was waffling over whether I should get married or not. I was like, wait a second. What if there is no right choice? What if they're just two completely different paths? Then I could choose one of the two and then make the commitment to make it right in my life. So this is I believe it's a lie that people tell themselves that you have to that there one, there is a right choice in every scenario and that you have to discover it through deep research in advance. And then once you make it, you're done. I did made the right choice. I'm good. I actually think it works the opposite. I think you have to make whatever choice and then you do all the work of making it right for your life. Yeah. General Patton, uh, you know, said that he had a great quote. I'm pretty sure it's him that, that a good plan executed violently is better than a perfect plan. Never executed. That's great. Yeah, totally. (laughs) All right. Last question before we wrap up, which is, the, same, the question comes from the title of a book, which is, how will you measure your life? I, I thought about this one a lot, actually, not, not in those terms exactly, but uh, the book is by who? Clay Christensen. Oh, awesome. That's cool. Clay, as an interesting side note, Clay did an article on precision nutrition. Oh, wow. Which was super cool. Um, because he's like one of our insights and marketing heroes because of our use of jobs to be done which is one of his fundamental frameworks you're probably familiar with for listeners. It's a way of acquiring customer and consumer data uh, that he came up with, you know, at Harvard. That's uh, really kind of like a deep dive into, into user studies. Yeah. Like we've used his framework for a long time and been huge fans. And then he contacted us and did a piece on, on how we implemented in our business. And we thought that was super cool, but anyway, yeah. So, we can talk in platitudes here, but I want to give an example. I was sitting down with a woman who I know really well, who I went to grad school with, and she's like one of the most accomplished humans you'll ever meet, right? She has an MD, PhD. You know, her MD is in one of the hardest possible specialties, right? You need all the extra training to get it. She also is a two time Olympic medalist. And on and on and on, right? So you've got this person who's achieved at the highest level of everything, academics, medicine, sport, right? And so she's really passionate about bringing exercise to medicine uh, and nutrition and behavior change to medicine, right? So rather than a very reactive kind of um, 
prescriptive fixing sick people model. She'd love to see medicine integrate some preventative. And um, we were talking about this and it just, just dawned on me when we had this chat openly that like, I think what she's doing is cool, but at the end of her career, at the end of her life, right? She's about my age. So she may have another 50 years to live or something like that. What kind of a dent will she make in that space? You know, she's a hard worker. If she puts her energy into this, she'll put the same kind of energy she put into all these other things. So like on the proverbial deathbed, you know, will she be pleased with having spent the next 50 years working on this thing and what it may have produced? And that's the criterion I run myself constantly. I come from this immigrant family of hardworking blue collar people. Whatever I decide to do in my career, I would have worked super hard at. I don't know if I would have been successful at, but I would have been hard, hard working. So I just know that for a fact. So the question just becomes, what am I going to direct all that crazy energy into? All that commitment, all that time, all that passion. And will it make me feel like I've accomplished something? You know, because like measuring what you accomplish against the world standard, I changed the world. I made a dent in the universe. Sometimes these things sound great, but I do make a little bit of the masturbation gesture when I hear them, you know, because I'm like, All of that is so subjective. And on your own deathbed, all that matters is with the energy, time, love, passion you were given and that you could give, did you do the thing that made you feel accomplished, right? And so, I I mean, mine is is really straightforward. It's going to be probably anticlimactic and irrelevant to almost all listeners. But mine is... You know, being in health and fitness saved my life. At some point at this, at one point in my life, I was going through a very, very difficult time. I almost died. And a mentor picked me up, gave me a job at a gym, you know, pushed me forward to go to, to school and get educated. And um, the rest is history. So I feel a deep personal gratitude and desire to pay it forward in health and fitness. That's why I work in this space. I think I could be very successful in other spaces based on my mindset and my intellect and my training and stuff. But this is the space I'm in. You know, I work with personal trainers, nutrition coaches, health coaches because of what this whole space did for me. So for me, at the end of my career or when I'm dying, uh, to know that the work that I did helped change the way that trainers, nutritionists, coaches see their clients. And the way that they see their own careers. If, if something I did move that in a positive direction, and I don't even have to get credit for it, if just knowing my work kicked off a domino effect or a chain reaction that other people contributed to in a massive way and get the credit for, that will be enough for me. That'll be satisfying. That'll be how I know I use my energy and attention to do something that was meaningful for me. And that's just my story. I just want to know that the field that saved my life was better for me having been in it on two dimensions. One is that the people working in it do better for the people they're working for and that the people working in it have a more hopeful future, more positive outlook and a better way of orienting to, the, to their work than they do today. That, that's, that's enough. And, and 
Some days it feels simple and, and not making a dent in the universe or whatever. Uh, other days it feels like a huge task. But that's my personal one. And uh, when, I, when I talk to people about this, I think it would just be amazing if each of them had something similar. Hmm. JB, thank you so much for joining us for round two of the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I'm, I'm incredibly uh, grateful for your time and for the, the wisdom and insight that you shared. And I, I'm, I know that this, this episode in particular is going to help people tap into a little bit more of their purpose and potential. So thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thanks. Thanks again for having me. Both, both rounds were really fun. Again, again, thanks to all the listeners. Probably spent about three hours <laughs> recording now. Uh, so anyone who stuck with us that long, super high fives to you. You're amazing. I appreciate you sticking with us and, and trying to glean some of the things that we're talking about here. I'm, I'm incredibly honored. Don't forget about the gifts I have for you, the Clarity of Purpose Scorecard and the Six Bridges to Personal Growth and Well-Being. Head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash scorecard and download it today and be sure to share that link with your friends and family. Dr. Berardi, thank you again for joining us for part two of the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Whether it is a fitness journey, starting a business, Mastering behavior change is critical to long-term success. So thank you so much for sharing your and your team's insight and research with us today. If you missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 71 for all the key points. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Now, until next time, go make an impact.